Like there are terrible diseases that afflict lots of people we love, and we don't have the cures for those diseases. But I can tell you exactly how we can end poverty. We just have lacked the political will and the political leadership with the guts to stand up to the big money and interests to actually do it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Joe Sandberg. Joe is an investor, entrepreneur, and progressive activist in California, where he has worked to pass a state-level earned income tax credit and is now aiming to raise the minimum wage in that state, either by initiative or through the legislature. Joe left Wall Street to found and invest in mission-oriented companies like Aspiration Inc., which connects large businesses to carbon credits, part of the fight against global warming. I was glad to hear Joe's story and why he's trying to make a dent in income inequality in California. You'll want to listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Joe Sandberg at Aspiration. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Joe, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Joe Sandberg. I am a Jew who grew up in Orange County, raised by a single mom, and we lost our home before closure when I was a teenager. We moved in with my um, mom's parents. Then I made my way through Harvard on a bunch of financial aid and government loans and started my career on Wall Street, where I built some savings in order to support my mom, but found that industry to be soulless and really disconnected from the person I was, I was raised and born to be. At age 30, I left Wall Street to move back to California and use the savings I had built to create businesses that align positive impact with profitability. That's not rhetoric. It's about the notion that a business that solves a hard problem should be able to generate a profit for solving that hard problem, that, that there should be an alignment between value and wealth. And where I think people have been rightfully furious with capitalism is that so much wealth has been created that's connected with the destruction of value instead of the production of value. And I think that actually most people can buy into this idea that if you create value that's positive for the world, it's okay to be financially rewarded for that. And I've tried to build those kinds of companies. And more recently, you've been combining that work with some political activism, right? Yeah, I've been doing political activism for the last 10 years as well, because I don't think that you can wait to give back until the end of your life. I think all throughout your life, you have to look for ways to make a positive difference. For the last 10 years, I've been working on anti-poverty issues. 10 years ago, I started by organizing a campaign to get California to launch the earned income tax credit, which is like a cash back wage subsidy for low income workers. 
when we first passed that in 2015, there hadn't been a new anti-poverty program in California for 40 years. Since that time, we took that program for something really small that served about 400,000 people and got them a couple hundred million dollars a year to now it's a program that reaches 4 million Californians every year. And combined with the federal EITC, the federal earned income tax credit gets about three to $4 billion back into the pockets of low-income people in California every single year. Most recently, I've been working on raising California's minimum wage. Last year, we collected over 1 million signatures to qualify for the 2024 ballot, a proposition to raise California's minimum wage to 18 bucks. So in November of 2024, voters in California will get to vote yes on raising the minimum wage to $18. That sounds like a good place to be all of these things you've put together? You know, I'm trying my best. Um, I got to tell you, I feel a great sense of um, angst every day because there's so much to get done and there's just not enough time and there's not enough people working on these problems. I look at the $18 minimum wage and I've been saying for a few years that if the minimum wage had increased at the rate of productivity since 1960, it would be $25. And I started saying that a few years ago. Now it would be like $27. And the problem is people are suffering every day that it takes a day longer to make change. And it's it's really hard for me because I know firsthand what that suffering is, having seen it growing up and staying connected to it through most of my adulthood. I think one of the things that really pisses me off is when people talk about politics and they say the problem in politics is lack of civility. And I think that that's such horseshit because if you can't feed your family, the problem in politics isn't lack of civility. It's that we have a corrupt and totally broken financial system that leaves almost everyone, almost everyone, working to barely make it week to week. When I hear people talk about the lack of civility in politics as the primary problem in politics, I think that's someone who doesn't have to worry about where their uh, paycheck's coming from. And I think that's the big divide in America. Those who have financial security, which is a very small number of people, and those who live paycheck to paycheck. I grew up, parents were both teachers. And in the early part of my life, that was definitely there, especially when my mom was home with the kids for the first while. I heard a lot about the not having any left over at the end of the month. Later on in my life, they had uh, cleared that a bit. Tell me a little bit more about your youth. You, you've mentioned single mother. Why was she single? What happened there? And tell me a little bit more about growing up in that household. Well, first of all, the way I grew up doesn't make me different. It rather puts me in solidarity with basically most people in my generation who had divorced parents and, you know, so many were raised by single moms. Why was my mom single? Because like so many fathers in my parents' generation, my father uh, didn't take fatherhood seriously. And again, that doesn't make me special. It just puts me in connection with tens of millions of other people. That's the American story at this point, more than the kids who grew up with an intact family. What does your mom do for a living? She's a high school teacher during her career. Now she's a book editor, obviously support and help her out. So she works on the things that she enjoys working on now. It's the most incredible privilege of being able to make some money is to take care of her mom. There's no better use of money, in my opinion, than to take care of the threats. What, what subject did she teach in high school? 
English. Yeah. My mom was a math teacher. I honor that profession teaching in, in high school. I think that's, it, it's, a, it's a hard job and, a, and a, a good job if you do it well. Tell me about the circumstances around this foreclosure that I've heard you mention to me and in, in other interviews. What was happening there? Well, as you know, you can do okay by your family as a teacher. What tipped us over the edge is my dad put a bunch of fraudulent debts into my mom's name. And then that came collapsing on my mom, her not having even realized that these debts were taken in her name. And that's how we lost our home to foreclosure. My dad had put the house on mortgage, however many doubles of mortgage, whatever, who knows who he was indebted to and was unbeknownst to my mom, putting my mom's name on those things. Do you have any relationship with him? No, I haven't talked to him in 26 years, 27 years. So it was late teen. It's kind of like stealing from the mother of his child. It seems really bad. Well, I would say it's not kind of. Yeah. It is. I heard you mention that around about the time that that was happening was when you got into Harvard, which is a, a sign that you were a pretty accomplished student in high school and it's a pretty selective place to go. What were you like as a student and what were you into studying at that time? Well, I was a, a super nerd. I studied, worked all night, and I probably slept less in high school than any other point in my life, you know, was sleeping four or five hours a night because I looked at getting into Harvard or a school like that as my escape from these circumstances. So I was working with a sense of survival instincts. It wasn't about aspiration as much as it was survival. And when I went to Harvard, I was confronted with just this extraordinary class divide because at Harvard and schools like it, you see wealth that's unlike most people in America see wealth. When I was a kid, of course, I had some friends whose parents had two cars and maybe they went on vacation on the weekends and maybe they had a second house, like a little place by the beach. And to me as a kid, those people were extraordinarily rich. And, and of course they are very rich and privileged. But then you go to Harvard and you see people who have jets and you see college students whose families give them jets. And it's this love of oligarchic money that's mind-boggling that I wish more Americans could see so they can understand actually how profoundly corrupt the system is and how those who try and pit the upper middle class versus the working class, it's all a joke to the oligarchs who are looking down on the rest of us. It's not the 99% and the 1%. It's the 0.0001%. It's the 100,000 richest families in the country who look down at the rest of us and laugh and see us as suckers. I know that admissions at Harvard and Ivy League schools and schools like that are slanted to people who are privileged, but there are a lot also of people out of the working class that they've been working on adding over time. I think they're probably better at it now than they were when you got there. Did you not run into anybody who had similar or worse circumstances? I know I oh, did. Oh, totally. My, yeah, my best friends were the people from similar circumstances. In fact, one of my very best friends, all the way going back to college, this is 25 years now, is Congressman Ruben Gallego, who's running for Senate in Arizona. He is one of my best friends. We met when I was a sophomore, and he was a first year. And 
one of the main reasons we bonded is because we both came from working class backgrounds. And we were also both at the same time reconciling this incredible oligarchic wealth at Harvard. You're right. There are working class folks. But the folks at Harvard for whom the doors are opened are the people who come from oligarch families. And Ruben sees that. And what is courageous among many things about Ruben is that he calls it out. So you want to know what diversity is at Harvard? Diversity is students from around the world who come from oligarchic families in other countries. And see, racially diverse oligarchy is still oligarchy. That's a kind of a very class-charged view of Harvard. What was your experience there as far as getting education? What did you study and but it's hard to experience it other than a class charge, right? Classism infused the whole experience at Harvard. Did you even need to go to class? What access to which professors you had? Um, which classes you could get? Were your parents major donors? So the reason I'm recounting a very class lens through the Harvard experience is it's the only way to recount it. Well, tell me about your education experience there. What did you study? What did you learn? I studied government, and I learned that, that government is controlled by people who have money. And then America is not one vote, one person. It is one dollar, one vote. You learned that at Harvard? <laughs> but not in class. I learned that through osmosis from listening to the other students and how their families influenced the political system and going to different events and experiences at Harvard where you saw up front how access is for those who have money. And who got the best jobs out of college? With some exception, the people who got the best grades. But when I was interviewing for jobs out of college, most of the people I was surrounded by were people who did the best as undergrads. They were the people who had the richest families with the most connections. Who got the internships at the White House? or in Congress, not the people who are the best students, but the people who had the best connection. And it's uncomfortable because it's true. It's, it's what we don't want to hear about America because we so need to believe that this country is a meritocracy, but it's a total bullshit illusion. This country is as far from a meritocracy as I believe any country in the developed world. And you see it now borne out in the lack of fluidity among socioeconomic levels. It's easier to go from working class to upper middle class in every developed economy, more so than the United States. You have twice as good a chance to go from the working class to upper middle class in Britain than you do in the United States. I, I don't know the statistics on that, but I know that there is mobility, for example, you, right? I'm the exception to the rule. And, and it took luck. I mean, I didn't get to where I am just because I worked hard. There's so many other people who worked hard. So much of what happened in my life is random chance. And I think one of the problems with the narrative is that we allow us to be convinced that the exceptions are the rule. So, of course, there are people who were able to rise up. But in totality, the number of people who actually are able to move from working class to upper middle class is a fraction of what it was generations ago. And even in the present, it's a fraction of what it is in other countries. Like I said, you have twice as good a chance to go from working class to upper middle class in Britain than you do in the United States. After you had taken four years in that 
hallowed institution that you you see in this way. Tell me about what you applied to in, in terms of jobs and what you landed. Well, I went to the career services office and applied for the highest paying job I could find because I understood that good intentions weren't going to pay for my mom's health insurance. So I applied for a job at Blackstone, which paid $55,000 a year, which was a crazy high salary for a 22-year-old in 2001. And I convinced them that my skills as a political organizer, which is basically how I spend my extracurricular time in college, were transferable to doing financial analysis on private equity transactions, which obviously it wasn't. But it just speaks to the whole baloney of it all, that like all this financial industry stuff uses these big jargon words to make it sound so complicated. But here's the truth. Finance, it's just arithmetic. You know all the math for high finance that you need by fourth or fifth grade. And I think that to me was part of the element of it that was just tragically comical is that all these people have accumulated all of these trillions of dollars based on this impression that they have some kind of expertise. And all it is is a bunch of arithmetic with fancy words to describe addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. I don't know if there's anything I did during my first two years on Wall Street that a fifth grader couldn't do with the math you've learned by fifth grade. So what were you doing exactly? Just putting numbers in a spreadsheet and adding up income losses and you know, they have a bunch of fancy words to describe EBITDA multiples and all of, all of this stuff. But it's really as simple as how much is left over to business after you subtract the costs from the revenue. For people who don't know, what is Blackstone? Blackstone is a big private equity firm. So you were evaluating companies, whether to buy them, whether to put more money into them, that sort of thing? Yeah. And, yeah. and to be clear, it could, I worked at Blackstone, but this could describe any firm. This isn't a Blackstone-specific thing. Well, I, I do know that there are very complicated models that are used in Wall Street that are way past fifth grade level, but perhaps in, in private equity is a little more arithmetical. Well, but you know what, though? Let's pause on that for a second. <laughs> to what efficacy of those models? Those are the models that blow up the financial industry and the American economy and the great financial crisis. Again, well, I'm, I think... There's a difference should... between a model and a, uh, and a policy around it. Those are different things. Right. You know, you're more optimistic than I am. I believe that these models and all of the so-called complexities are taking simple ideas and making them really complicated so that you can charge major rents on them. I mean, you take the financial crisis. There wasn't anything complicated about the model. It was just about stacking one product on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. Like the Jenga puzzles. And then you pull one piece of the puzzle out, and it doesn't matter how complicated the model is. You're talking about housing, sort of housing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All those complicated models in the housing um, market and, you know, those complicated models tried essentially obfuscate what was very simple, which is people were putting risky bets on top of risky bets on top of risky bets. You were betting on the Giants to win. And then I was betting on whether you were betting correctly and someone else was betting on whether I was betting whether you were betting correctly, which meant if one bet went wrong, all three betters lost. A lot of correlated stuff. Yeah, that's you know that in fifth grade. Well, I don't know if most fifth graders would understand that, but perhaps you did. If you started at 55,000 and did really well there, tell me a little bit about your career at Blackstone. And you were also at another firm or two, right? Tell me about your career there and, and how it grew to, to 30 when you left. 
I only spent a couple of years at Blackstone, and then I worked at a firm called Tiger Global for five years. And look, there, there's some really smart people at these firms and who have really good hearts. And to me, the, the tragic elements of it is how many incredibly smart people I met who I wish were working on problems of greater consequence to society. I totally agree with that. I saw many people from my generation and subsequent generations that were some of the very smartest people at some of the very best places using their minds on precisely this. Now, a lot of them have rationalized that and some have gotten sucked into it for a lifetime and some have found ways out and to do maybe better stuff as I think you have. But what is Tiger Global? What did you do there? It's just another kind of an investment firm. I analyzed investments and you know, made recommendations about what companies to invest in and, you know, did that across a variety of industries. I've got the impression that you made a lot of money in those years. Was that salaried money? Did you get a piece of the upside of the firms as you went along? How did you build your career there in that fashion? You were paid bonuses based on the quality of the work you did. So if you did good work and made good recommendations, you would get paid more. It's very alluring to stay in that world and stay one um, more year. You're going to make a whole lot more that next year. Why wouldn't you do it? Right. Totally. Yeah. Except you realize that there's no price on your soul. Well, some, some people do other people <laughs> don't. Right. That's why I said in my introduction, you said, what's my bio. I said, I'm a Jew who grew up in Orange County. And I started with, I'm a Jew because what's core is I believe in God. And I believe that we're created with meaning and intent to live lives with a purpose so that we can help others as much as we can during the time we have. And I think that that's a universal interpretation of what the God-human relationship is that can apply to Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, any ethical interpretation of an infinite power. And I take it really, really seriously. And when I'm asked, why do I do what I do? I say, the truth, which is because of my belief in God and how my faith informs how I believe you're supposed to live. Now, I've not lived in accordance with those ideals every day of my life. I don't think anyone has. That's sort of the definition of being human. And during the time I was on Wall Street, when I was so obsessed with money, I was most distant from those ideals of what it means to be a child of God. Let me ask you about that a little bit. What do you mean obsessed with money? What was your mind on? Were you interested in the things that you could buy? Were you interested in sort of some people think of money as like a measuring post against other people? Like I make this, you make that. What was the nature of that obsession during that time? I think that Wall Street and high parts of American business at large infect you with this mindset that it measures who you are. And then you both measure yourself and measure others based on how much money you have and how much money they have, which is fundamentally dehumanizing to yourself and to others. And I believe that the closer you live your life in proximity to the values of goodness, for me, I think of that as faith in God, the happier you will ultimately be because I believe that God is in all of us. And if you treat yourself in a dehumanizing way, then you're, living in a, a way that's distant from God. And I think that the more distant you live from God, the more miserable you are, the closer you are, the more happy you are. And so I found that myself, that after years on Wall Street of judging myself by how much money I made and judging others by how much they made, 
they hollowed out my soul. And I was so miserable by age 30 that my brother told me that my 18-year-old self wouldn't like my 30-year-old self. And he was right. He was totally right. And in the time since then, there have been moments where I've made more money. There have been moments where I've made less money. But I've always been a lot happier, even during times that seem externally stressful, because I know why I'm doing everything I'm doing in my life. And I have known the why for the last 13 years, which is trying to heal the world in my own way while I have the time to do so in my life. What did your brother see? Was there a moment that he saw? What was he doing differently? Did he have it right? I don't think any of us have it perfectly. Of course not. Um, I think it wasn't about what he was doing, but rather just reflecting back to me how he had remembered me at 18 and how he saw me at 30. At 30 years old, I was obsessed in judging myself by how much money I had and others by how much money they had, which is the opposite of how I was at 18. At 18, I was a values-driven, not naive, but values-driven person who understood that the world is an unfair place, but you have to bring your own sense of fairness into an unfair world. There surely must have been a big upside, though, to having spent nearly that decade accumulating some funds because you could take care of your mother. You could put yourself in a position to have choices going forward. You must have had some savings so that you could use them in politics. I mean, when you look back at that time, do you have mixed feelings about it at all? Are you glad that you were able to accomplish that and get yourself on solid footing? Totally. And these are the complicated dimensions of life. I think one of the really intellectually bankrupt aspects of how we understand people today is through these black and white lenses. There are very few people that are either all good or all bad. There's very few experiences that are either all good or all bad. There are some, and you know, we don't need to call them out because I think we know the ones that are just obviously all bad. But as I think back to the time I spent on Wall Street, look, I was playing by the rules. They just happened to be a set of rules that focused you on making as much money as possible. That's kind of what they do there. That's kind of what they do there. So on the negative, it was very soulless and it made me unhappy. On the positive, it allowed me to support my mom and build savings that now I've used to build other companies that are creating a positive impact. And this is the gray area of human experience. Did you have a period when you had left Wall Street where you had to adjust those values? Was it like a clean break? When you make a transition like that in life, typically it requires... I was showing who I was. Who I was at 13 and 18 and 21. That's who I returned to being at 30. The period of my life in my 20s when I was on Wall Street was the aberration, not the norm. But my mom, my grandparents, like I was instilled with very, very core clear values that I was self-aware of going back to, you know, being an early teen. And so it was just a matter of going back to those. You said you were part of helping other companies that you look upon as better examples. I, I know one of those is Blue Apron. I don't know a lot of others. Tell me about the types of businesses and the kind of uh, involvement that you had in them subsequent to, to well, your the biggest years. one is Aspiration. Aspiration. Aspiration is one of the biggest climate tech companies, I think, having one of the biggest impacts on the, the mission to decarbonize the atmosphere. Aspiration's taken 
tens of millions of metric tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. What it does as a business is originate decarbonization projects around the world, nature-based projects that remove carbon from the atmosphere, and then turns the carbon that those projects extract from the atmosphere into what's called carbon credits and sells those carbon credits to big companies who want to pay money to offset their carbon emissions. I thought there was some aspect of aspiration that had to do with giving regular people some access to financial vehicles. Did I get something wrong about that? I was just reading quickly about it. We started way back in the day with consumer financial products that were made different because they had embedded in them automated climate action so that every transaction you'd make, the carbon footprint of that transaction would be identified and automatically neutralized by our carbon credits program. And that gave the company cause to originate decarbonization projects around the world at big scale. And over time, the company examined its strength and started to utilize that strength to help enterprises go carbon neutral. In a way, the individual financial products for aspiration are like books were to Amazon. Books gave Amazon the original entry to understanding what customers want. And our consumer financial products gave us original entry to financing decarbonization projects around the world and making carbon credits. Give me an example of one of those projects so that people can understand it. What's something that that is happening that takes carbon out? I've seen things about like capping methane leaks on gas fracking or things like that. What is it in your case? Well, first, let me say that those listening might go on the internet and look up carbon credits. And what you're going to find is some good stuff and some bad stuff. Let me tell you the carbon credits 101 that divides good and bad carbon credits. One type of carbon credit is called an avoidance credit. An avoidance carbon credit connects to something that is preventing the emission of carbon. Then there's another kind of carbon credit called a removal carbon credit. A removal carbon credit references to a project that is extracting carbon from the atmosphere. Planting trees or something like that. Exactly. So an example of an avoidance carbon credit would be, imagine we had a big piece of land and that land had oil reserves and we contractually prohibited ourselves from exploring those reserves. We could calculate the difference between the carbon that would have been emitted if we had explored those reserves and zero. And that difference is the carbon you avoided emitting. Now, I think those carbon credits are full of shit. And Some, most other they're people, just drilling somewhere else, right? I totally. Mean, yeah. And so when you look up on the internet and you see a lot of the bad press about carbon credits, it's not that carbon credits are bad. It's that it just depends on the kind. So that kind of carbon credit that's avoiding emissions of carbon, I think is a bunch of Mickey Mouse baloney. There's another kind of carbon credit, which is called the removal carbon credit, which is the only kind aspiration does. And that would be connected to some kind of project that is extracting carbon from the atmosphere. So, for example, let's suppose we went and planted 100 million trees that didn't exist before. Now the trees exist. And because those trees exist, each tree removes approximately 48 kilograms of carbon every year from the atmosphere. So, actually, aspiration, this number is probably going to be low because we're planting every month. But we've planted over 100 million trees over the last uh, 18 months, I think. Mainly where? Africa and South America. 
because you want to plant trees. We do more than just reforestation, but wherever you're doing your nature-based projects that are removing carbon from the atmosphere, you want to do so where you can have the maximum amount of carbon you can remove from the atmosphere at the minimum amount of price. So you could plant trees in Montana, but it's going to cost a lot more than doing it in South America. And in this case, we just want to do as much carbon removal as possible for as low a price as possible so you can maximize your impact. Help me understand the business model for that. So you plant 100 million trees. That gives a polluter an option to put money into that so that they can get away with a certain kind of pollution that they're having to do. I don't really quite understand it. What you described is something that certain actors do. But keep in mind that throughout the economy, every company is emitting carbon. There are some companies that you think of as the picture book of polluters. And then there's everyone else who's still emitting carbon. So think about your favorite internet company or your favorite social media company or whatever, favorite food company, right? Not companies you think of as the poster children of polluters, but in the regular course of their business, they're using electricity and they have data centers and this emits carbon. And so Aspiration's clients are those kind of companies that are living in the real world where unfortunately we still have to use fossil fuels and in the regular course of their business, which isn't a business about creating fossil fuels, but it's just consuming them. Yeah. Yeah. Because we live in a modern economy and that's how it is for now. They want to spend money to remove carbon from the atmosphere to offset the carbon that they've emitted, not because they're drilling for oil, but because, you know, they're using electricity, using data centers, doing the things that are allowing us to be on this video call, right? How's Aspiration doing as a company? It's doing really well. It's doing really well. The need is so big that it's more than one company can fill. And one of the things that weighs on me is how, unless we really start amping up climate action, we're in a lot of trouble. Sometimes people ask, well, what's that person going to be in 10 years? And I think about that and I think about the fact that we're the category leader and that I think about a realistic place that we can be in 10 years, plus the optimism that I as an entrepreneur apply to it. And then I think if that's where we're going to be as the category leader, that's bad because it's not enough. Let me give you an example. Yeah, go ahead. Now tell me a little bit about, about your scale now and your aspiration for aspiration in 10 years. So we have what we believe is the largest inventory of carbon removal credits in the private sector. And that is about 450 million metric tons. And our market research suggests that the next biggest competitor has maybe 20, 25 million metric tons. So that sounds like we're big, right? Here's the problem. There is in excess of what life on Earth can support, like 3 trillion metric tons of carbon in the atmosphere. And human behavior is adding 40 billion metric tons of that every single year. So we're already, you know, a degree and a half, two degrees Celsius above where 
the planet can be. And if we go another degree and a half, scientists would say it's a point of no return. And to get back to where we need to be, we need to stop adding 40 billion metric tons every year of excess. And we need to draw down the 3 trillion metric tons that exist. And aspiration is the category leader has 450 million metric tons. The numbers are so enormous that it can get lost. So we can't quite count on just you. <laughs> but I'm curious about like, sometimes when you get going on something, you're it's easy to get to the first 450 million because there's low hanging fruit and it gets harder afterwards. Sometimes it gets easier. Sometimes it gets easier than harder. What's your sense of like to scale your enterprise to take more carbon out of the atmosphere over 10 years, which I assume you'd want to grow by a large factor. Is that something you're able to do based on places to plant trees, enterprises to help you do it, you know, and all of the other schemes I assume that there are that can have some efficacy? It's getting easier because as you sign up more big enterprise clients who bring credibility to your services, then the next set of enterprise clients decide to go with you more quickly. In this kind of business, you call it your sales cycle. How long does it take to take a prospective customer and make them a customer? And as you get more credible clients, big clients. When you're talking about clients, it sounds like you're talking about the people who will pay for the credits. Big enterprise clients that are paying Aspiration a lot of you know, tens of and hundreds of millions of dollars. I, I get that. I'm talking also about the, the side of actually getting the work done. Once you're paid $100 million, to, then to get that work done, to get the carbon out, that seems to me like a difficult side of it, as well as the sales side, of course. That's the more difficult side of it. Yeah, right? I, I, that's what I'm guessing. Because it takes time. That's the challenge with doing it the right way. The removal carbon credits, which connect to projects that are extracting carbon from the atmosphere, take time to mature. So staying with the um, straightforward example of planting trees, you could have a trillion dollars and, and put a trillion dollars worth of seeds in the ground. It's not going to extract any carbon for four years. So that's another reason that this is a sobering problem is it's going to take time to ramp up our activities, our being the global society's activities. Are there things beyond planting trees that are showing promise at a quicker, bigger scale? Like, are we coming up with new ideas for doing this? I'm not following the science on that. Well, first of all, we reference tree planting because it's very easy to understand. But tree planting is not the only solution. It's not necessarily even the best solution. It's one of many solutions. And we need to do everything. Anything that's safe and verifiable that removes carbon from the atmosphere, we need to do. In addition, I do think that there's a lot of merit for using nature's recipe book. Carbon is not a secret thing. There's processes in nature that produce carbon, and there's processes in nature that extract carbon. And the two biggest examples are organic life breathes in oxygen and emits carbon. And plant life breathes in carbon and emits oxygen. And so very simply put, we've put that out of balance over the last half century. And we're emitting more carbon than there are things that 
consume carbon. So could, could you use, if you got a lot of resources, could you do other things like build wind farms or something that would, really? that you would substitute? Sure. Is that part of the idea or the plan for your company? Totally. Aspiration is in the business of connecting the people and organizations that want to put money into removing carbon from the atmosphere with every way to do so. And aspiration is in favor of every legitimate verifiable way that removes carbon from the atmosphere. I know that there's some people working on technologies that would reflect light away or absorb carbon into some kind of carbon sucking machine, or there's all kinds of ideas. Are you, are you part of playing in that space? Do you want to be? We want to be in every avenue that legitimately and safely removes carbon from the atmosphere. And I also think we need to be really cautious about the hubris of believing we're smarter than mother nature. Yeah, oh, I agree. Um, millions of years of evolution have fine tuned all of these organisms that take in oxygen and emit carbon and take in carbon and emit oxygen. We should be really humble about taking what's worked and supersizing it instead of trying to think of new things as if we're smarter than billions of years of evolution of nature. Sounds like a, a pretty fascinating business to be in. How much time do you spend on it? As much time as it needs of me. The way I think of you know my days is just I go to where, where I'm needed, whether that's in the political advocacy, the anti-poverty work, aspiration, blue apron, wherever else. You know, I'm fortunate that the basic needs are secure and I'm not someone um, who gives uh, much concern about material stuff. You know, I'm very aware of how blessed I am. I also think that you should, you know, you can only have three meals a day, four meals, whatever. You can only sleep in one bed at night. You know, only drive one car at a time. And I really understand like these material things are just a bunch of bullshit after a certain point. They mean a ton when it's about the basic needs, right? So, you know, I'm so glad that I have access to great healthcare, but, but beyond that, I don't, do fancy stuff. But it sounds like if you have a company like Aspiration that's doing well, that's only going to push you in the other direction. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I take everything I have and give it back. In the car I drive is 10 years old and the utility I see in money is how you can use it to make a bigger impact. Tell me about now the political side of you. So I got a sense of you coming out of Wall Street, now starting to do more mission-oriented businesses. You mentioned that you worked towards that EITC in California back in 2015. I know federally that the earned income tax credit is one of the more effective ways of moving money to working poor people. And I'm assuming that it works pretty well, the same model in, in California. And poverty is something that is so intractable that it has to be tackled at very large scale to even have measurable impact. So why did you choose that particular thing to get you moving into the political world? What was motivating that? And what was the opportunity beyond what's obvious there? Well, first of all, it's absurd and immoral that there is such a thing called working poor. Nobody who's working full-time should be poor. And that is an expression of where the American dream has been a total lie for hundreds of millions of people over the last half century. You're supposed to be able to live with a basic sense of comfort and dignity if you work full time in America. And 
we have a huge number of people, tens and tens and tens of millions, arguably over 100 million, who are working poor. Second of all, you're right. On a micro level, you can't solve poverty one person at a time. But every time you help one person, you've changed that person's entire world. Or you can solve that one person at a time. <laughs> There's a lot of effort in that to add it up to as many people as you're talking about. Yes. Sure. Okay. But I'm just I'm saying that sometimes people get so up in the clouds around societal structural change that they forget the grace that exists in changing one person's entire world. Agreed. As far as though the big problems and how it's intractable, it's not intractable from a policy level because it is a policy choice, which is another reason why I think it's so absurd. We have poverty because we have policies that create poverty. Poverty is not a state of nature. We don't need a medical science cure for poverty. We need different policies. We create an economy. We don't live in an economy. And over the last half century, we've been convinced that we live in an economy where there are these forces that are outside of our control, these invisible godlike forces. And I think that people are starting to see that that is total bullshit, that we are people who create an economy, not an economy that has dominion over people. And as soon as you flip that around and understand that we create our economy through the policy choices that we make through our elected leaders, or in some countries through their non-elected leaders, then you can realize that whatever outcomes are driven by those policies, they're not some force of nature. So if you wanted to eliminate poverty, we could, we could write you up a whole policy program. It will do that. What's so infuriating is that there are some other problems that there aren't such straightforward approaches for. Like there are terrible diseases that afflict lots of people we love, and we don't have the cures for those diseases. But I can tell you exactly how we can end poverty. We just have lacked the political will and the political leadership with the guts to stand up to the big money interests to actually do it. What do you think the income distribution should curve should look like? If right now it looks like very tiny number of people at one end holding a huge proportion of wealth and half the people having essentially zero, some people would think it should be completely flat and everybody should have exactly the same amount of money. I think very few people actually think that. I think that ultra right-wingers want you to believe that people think that. Right. What, 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 would you, what would you aim at? I wouldn't aim at a curve. I would aim at an outcome where nobody is without life's basic needs. Nobody should be without great medical care, great education, great um, work that pays dignified wages, healthy food. These are things that are for everyone. And once everyone has those things, then if someone wants to have a Ferrari, great. The problem is when someone has a Ferrari and someone else doesn't have food. And the problem with focusing on the curve is it thinks about it like a zero-sum game, and then it pits everyone against each other. And that's led to these false narratives where we have to have poverty in order to have mobility. And you have to have some in economic inequality in order to have, you know, great innovation. All lies, all lies, all lies. 150 years ago, you know, they said we're going to run out of resources. Um, that may end up being right. Well, if we run out of resources, it won't be because that was faded. 
It will be because we chose to make decisions that took us down a finite path. You can use fossil fuel and you can burn up the earth or you can find net zero energy sources, right? One of the prescriptions that I've seen you write about is a much increased wealth tax. Yeah, totally. I agree with that. Income tax doesn't really get at a lot of the uh, the money that's out there. People Remember I said earlier that there's 100,000 really rich families that laugh at everyone? One of the things they laugh at is the obsession with the income tax. Yeah. Because, because the 100,000 richest families, they don't have income. They just have wealth. I'm on board with you on taxing that. People will raise many objections. It's hard to make that calculation. It's just double taxation on money that's already been taxed. You'll hear all kinds of stuff like that. How do you make the political argument when you're faced with that kind of somehow wealthy people have succeeded in persuading a lot of less wealthy people or aspiring wealthy people to come along with them against that kind of sensible reform? How do you make that political argument? How do you think about it? I think by returning the argument to the very basic elements that existed before these really rich oligarchs and their lobbyists complicated the argument. So that begins with this idea that, well, a wealth tax, that's not something we do in America. Bullshit. Every state has a wealth tax. It's called real estate taxes. What does a wealth tax mean? It means a tax on the things you own. An income tax is a tax on the things you earn. Well, every state has taxes on real estate. Now, let me flip it around and, and ask this question to those who are listening. Real estate is owned by a lot of people. Not everyone, but, you know, a lot of people. But not a lot of people own stocks and art and dinosaur fossils. Literally, there are rich people who collect dinosaur fossils. So why is it fair that hundred millions of people are taxed on their real estate, which is a part of their wealth, but the really rich people don't get taxed on the things that only really rich people own. So when it comes to stuff that we all own or a very big portion of us own, right? The idea of home ownership is, is not something that's so distant that it's unknowable, uh, right? That's taxed. But when it comes to the things that are only the special dominion of the ultra-rich, no, you can't tax that. Isn't the capital gains tax, even though it's lower, regrettably, isn't that a tax on wealth? No, because you only you only tax, tax. In, on the gain, not not on the Correct. on the principal, right? That Correct. Sense. So what happens when you only tax the gains in your stock when you sell them? By the way, what's crucial is to understand that if you never sell your stock. You never pay taxes. So what happens? What do rich people do? They never sell the stock and they borrow money instead against it. And you don't pay taxes on that. And so this goes back to there's 100,000 families that are laughing at all of us because they tricked us into thinking a wealth tax. How could you have me pay a wealth tax when all of the 350 million other people that those 100,000 families are laughing at? 250 million of them are paying a wealth tax, which is called a real estate tax every year that every state, red, purple, and blue, assesses on its citizens. Another thing that you're working on, as you mentioned, is 
changing the minimum wage in California. And I know that there's two things going on, one a ballot initiative and one some efforts in the legislature. Tell me about what's happening there and what you're up to. California has a feature where you can take policies straight to the electorate in the form of ballot initiatives. It's really good that we have this because in California, well, it might seem like our politicians with Democrats next to their name, Democratic label, they are anything but progressive when it comes to economics. The number one impediment in California to a higher minimum wage is our Democratic governor who claims to want to run for president. And we can't even get him on board with raising the minimum wage to $18, which is supported by 75% of Californians. And I'm drawing that out for emphasis because one cynical view of politics might be, well, politicians just follow the polls. If only, if only, the problem is politicians don't follow the polls. Politicians follow the lobbyists and their money. Because if politicians followed the polls, we would have had a higher minimum wage in California a long time ago. And this has been the biggest eye-opener that I hope I can transmit to other people. Out of curiosity, if California was able to get through the EITC reform, which did move a lot of money, what was different in that situation? Because that's a analogous progressive reform going through the state that did improve the lives of a lot of people and you're associated with it. Why could one thing go through and not another? What's going on there? The Chamber of Commerce and big business lobbyists are more organized in their opposition to a higher minimum wage. And they have made that case in the way that they make the case to the legislators and to the governor is what you're saying. The most powerful interests in California politics are the Chamber of Commerce, oil and gas, and health insurance companies. Those three entities write California policy. Doesn't matter if you have a Democratic governor or a Republican governor, they write policy. What do you think the prospects are in the legislature? And what do you think the prospects are for the initiative? Well, for the ballot initiative, I think the prospects are overwhelmingly strong because the beauty of these ballot initiatives is that you get outcomes that reflect what voters want because the outcomes are determined by voters. Sometimes there's some slippage between polling and outcomes. Not so much slippage that something that polls with 75% support wouldn't win. The challenge is getting it on the ballot because business interests know that they have to stop it from being on the ballot because once it gets on the ballot, it's very hard to stop. As far as the legislature... I think if the legislature were left to its own device, it would pass. The problem is the governor, which is the focus of the Chamber of Commerce's lobbying, will, I believe, try to stymie the legislature from ever bringing it to a vote. Because the governor doesn't want to veto a higher minimum wage because he knows that it's so popular that that would be a bad headline. So he will work behind the scenes to try and get the legislature to never let it come to a vote. And the reason I'm calling this out is my hope is that by putting enough light on it, it will be harder for them to act behind the scenes in the back alley. If I'm just trumping everyone, this is going to happen. Keep your eyes on it. Maybe it'll be less likely to happen. Do you think he thinks it's not an issue that plays well to a national audience? If he's got national aspirations, I'm not sure if I understand 
what his rationale would be. Because his chamber of commerce is not his constituency. Your guess is as good as mine. My mom told me from a young age, only God knows what's in someone's heart. And I sure as heck don't know what's in his heart. And I can't even figure out what's in his head. Because we have made that exact case to him. You should ask him. If I have the chance, I will. How have you been received in political circles in California for this work that you've been doing? What's been the reaction that you've been getting personally? It depends on who you are. I think if you're um, a low-income worker who's a direct beneficiary of all the advocacy that our coalition has done, and I want to emphasize this, I'm only a spark. There's nothing without the broad coalition we have. I think that I've been able to, to spark activity but I'm not singularly responsible for anything. Weren't you paying for for signature gathering and stuff like that? I, I, I was, but you don't get that done without a big coalition of great allies and labor. I've never accomplished anything by myself. All of my best victories are never when they're my victories. It's when they're victories in teams. And I think people know that I don't need credit. I just want results. And I think that's been something that's worked in favor of the issues that we've been pushing. It's really a powerful dynamic when you're willing to give out the credit to everyone else. I've read about you in the press and elsewhere that you, from time to time, consider running for office, which is, I think, a very good thing to do if you have your heart in the right place. What attracts you to different types of offices that you might consider? And what's your current thinking on that? Well, I think more people need to consider running for office. We have this weird dynamic where we complain about the quality of people in elected office. And then when someone thinks about running for office, we criticize them as being too ambitious. We're left wondering why do we not have better people in elected office? If you make it an undesirable place to be, then you're going to discourage people from pursuing it. And I love what you said. More people should consider running for office. Yeah, I've thought about running for office. So should a lot of other people who don't think about it, unfortunately. For me, the question is, where can you have the best impact at different moments in your life? And it just depends as circumstances change, as your life changes, as the need changes. I don't have any illusion that there's glamour in elected office. And I think part of the problem is too many people are drawn to elected office because they think it's glamorous. And if you talk to most people who are in it, they'll tell you it's hard work. It's not glamorous. But I do think that you can have a huge difference in elected office. I think elected office can be an incredible scaling mechanism for solutions to big problems. What do you think makes a great elected leader? Who are people that you might admire that have done that? I think it depends on the kind of elected position. I think that the types that make for great legislators members of Congress and the Senate, members of state legislatures, city council people, are different personalities than those who make for great executives, mayors, governors, um, presidents. So, you know, when I think about legislators and I think about the most current generation, I think about Ruben Gallego is just one of the most extraordinary ones. I frankly think Nancy Pelosi is an extraordinary speaker. And I think history will remember her as just incredibly groundbreaking and efficacious. I think as far as presidents are concerned and executives, I think uh, we've been deprived of a lot of good executives over the last uh, couple of decades because 
I think the best executive personalities aren't going into politics. Um, it isn't to say that the best executives for politics should come from business necessarily, but it is to say that a governor or a president has to run things. And there's nothing about being a legislature that gives you experience in running things. So when people are voting for executive positions, they should really think hard about, does this person have experience running things? Running things is a very different proposition than voting on things. You're accountable for distributing scarce resources. You're accountable for articulating a vision and then building teams in order to implement that vision against competing forces. You know, the difference between leading in theory and leading in real life is in theory, there isn't shit flying at your face every day. And in real life, whether it's in politics or business or any other field where there's leadership, playing real life sports, the difference between a game or practice is that there's competition and adverse circumstances. And one of the things that really irks me when you read some of the politicians, right, is they'll say, well, this happened because of these adverse circumstances. And they use that as an excuse. And that's so dishonest because adverse circumstances is just called life. The job of the leader is to be the one who goes into the shitstorm, not complaining that there is a shitstorm. You have a lot of proximity to the world of entrepreneurship and some participation in that. What do you think is the crossover in the characteristics of a good entrepreneur and potentially a good political leader? Well, I think there's a lot of crossover. First and foremost, resourcefulness and flexibility. To be an entrepreneur is to have the um, versatility to adjust to changing circumstances and to know that the value of the plan you make is just going through the interactive thinking about how different pieces might fit together, not knowing with certainty how and in what sequences those pieces are going to unfold. And similarly, you see this time and again, when someone is elected to be a mayor or a governor or president, they're elected with these expectations that are defined by a set of circumstances. And then those circumstances change. And the ones who are the best are the ones who are able to take and maintain their core principles and then rearticulate those core principles for changed circumstances. And that is the hallmark of entrepreneurship as well. You start a business and you put a business plan together. But I believe the only value of that business plan is to preview for your stakeholders how you will think about how pieces fit together, not to predict how circumstances are going to unfold because it's almost impossible to predict. When you went onto Wall Street, you became embedded in that culture for a while and you acted like a Wall Streeter. If you went into politics, someone might ask, why would we not think you would just behave like other politicians when the incentive structures around you would be the same as for all of them? You're an older person now. You've thought more through your, your value system and so on, I, I trust. But how would you go into a job, say you were ever going to do that, trying to make sure that you kept your North Star right? I think my experience and how I was disconnected from my core values on Wall Street was more about an experience of a young 20-something coming into adulthood than it was about Wall Street. And 
as a 20-something finding one's way in adulthood, I think so many of us can relate to the experiences that disorient or unanchor us from who we're meant to be. And I think that how one approaches an environment as a mid-40-something should, I hope, be very different, more mature and grounded than how one deals with it as a mid-20-something. So whatever I do, I think, is informed by the fact that I'm older, grayer, fatter, and wiser. <laughs> well, that maybe that, that extra heft gives you like more stability in the world. I, I, I hope it does for me. <laughs> I, I keep trying to say that to my cardiologist, <laughs> but maybe I'll bring, with you, bring you with me next time. I don't think it'll work. A friend of mine who has some proximity to people with excessive wealth refers to them as masters of the universe. He says these, these are people who operate on a different plane of ego and ability to, to do the things that they want to do. They're not like us in a certain way. And we see them every cycle somewhere thinking that they can apply their master's degree of that sort. Some of these are very talented people who've done very well in one arena. Of course, they think they can do something in politics. Why would someone looking at you not think, oh, here's just another person who did well financially and thinks he can solve every problem? What distinguishes you, if anything does, from other well-meaning people that want to take what they've done in that arena and apply it to politics? Well, first of all, I can't solve every problem. You're not coming from the I alone can fix this world. Hell no. <laughs> Anyone who says I alone can fix this, run. I can't fix any problem by myself, but I think I can be a meaningful component of the teams that we need to fix problems. I've been working in politics for 10 years, and I think it's important to understand that the most powerful unit of politics is a citizen. And I've been extremely active as a citizen advocate for the last 10 years. And the time I spent on Wall Street was a very short period of time in my 20s. So I think that I come from a very unique perspective. I didn't spend 40 years on Wall Street and accumulate whatever and all these, you know, stupid toys and all the rest. And then decided I need a new challenge to conquer. You're still building companies and, and you know, the, some of them are doing well. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not accumulating those resources to give away at the end of my life. I'm giving them away right now. Because you never know. How, this is one of the things that's crazy to me about these people who accumulate resources and they're going to give away at the end. Is how do you know when the, when the end is? So, so arrogant. Nothing, no time is guaranteed. And so this is why, yes, during my 20s, I was disconnected from the spirit of contribution, but... I'm almost 44 now. So at this point, you know, seven years of my 20s is a smaller and smaller portion of my adulthood. Now, now 14 years, I've been active in political advocacy and giving back. And, you know, I think that's a pretty different ball of wax. No, look, I'm happy to talk to anybody who's been successful and is trying to raise the standard of living of people in California who make much less than they ought to. I'm Happy to have had the chance to talk to you about it. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? No, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for bearing with me. I feel the same way uh, on my side. I think 
that you're very generous with your time and with your answers and contending with some perhaps impertinent questions. So, uh, no, I actually don't think any of them were impertinent. It was interesting. Yeah. I, you pushed me and prodded me, which I appreciated. Well, it, it, it was a very enjoyable for me. So thank you for that. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, let's do it again. Let's get back together later this year. I'm, I, I welcome the chance to talk to you again, and I, I'd love let's to see hear what happens in the legislature. Yeah. Let's see if was my cynicism foresightful or did my public cynicism maybe preempt and prod people to act differently? When you were talking about the governor, I was hoping that that kind of attitude might get under his skin enough to make him favor something, right? I don't know. I don't know his psychology. I don't know him at all. But like, it seems like the kind of thing that a democratic governor of a progressive state ought to do. You and me both. That was Joe Sandberg. He's at aspiration.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com. <laughs>